Hello and welcome to Peach Pod, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host for this show. And we got a full house on the show this week. Uh, we're joined, uh, as usual, by Luke Boggs. How you doing, Luke? I'm doing good. Feeling feeling cramped. Yeah, it's a busy time for Peach Pod. We're also joined by Austin Wagner, returning after doing all of that great analysis during the Georgia Six race. How you doing, Austin? Not too bad. I'm going to try to get some rest now. Yeah, me too. And then we are also joined by Reed Powell. He's a Republican activist in the state, and he's going to join us today to give us a little bit of insight on this uh, special election that just wrapped up. Reed, thanks so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me, Kyle. I'm excited. All right. So for this week, we are going to follow up on the uh, Georgia 6 congressional special election that just wrapped up. Uh, you probably know by now because this was all over the airwaves, but um, but uh, Karen Handel defeated John Ossoff in this race, um, sort of as expected if you looked at sort of just the partisan breakdown of the race, um, but Ossoff's campaign was one that generated a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. Um, so for Democrats who are watching this race closely and who were pretty excited about it, this kind of comes as a disappointment. But if you were on Team Handel in this one, um, I'm sure that you're excited, but also sort of feeling like this thing turned out kind of how you thought it would be. Um, so we're going to dig right into that. And then for the second topic this week, we're going to check in on the Republican efforts to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare. We haven't checked in on this in a little while, um, but it's a proposal that might have some legs and be having some movement in the Senate this week and next week. So uh, definitely something important to check in on because it's something that would have big implications for Georgia in the future. Um, but we'll start with our first topic this week and just kind of dive into the special election. So um, Karen Handel and John Ossoff wrapped up their race. Handel beat Ossoff in this race. Um, let's start with you, Luke, on just sort of your first take on what you thought of this outcome. Was this expected? Was it a surprise? And what does it mean for Democrats in Georgia? I mean, my first reaction to this is it is like you said, it is what you expected. If you kind of looked at the data, you looked at the district, you looked at the history, it's what you expected. Um, obviously it's disappointing it's very disappointing to me because as we discussed pretty thoroughly on this show i thought karen handel did not run a great race i'm sure reeg will disagree with me vehemently very soon um i thought ossoff ran a pretty good race but i mean at the end of the day you know it's like a 20 point republican district and ossoff was able to close the gap and make it into a four point district but you know there's some disappointing things like he didn't do as well as hillary clinton did in the district and i think the lessons that can be learned from this race is that um running a generic democrat against a generic republican might not be enough to win the uh house back and there might be a lot bigger need for a bold agenda from the democrats to really win the seats that we need to win at the end of the day though i don't think over interpreting this race in either direction is a good idea because and this is something that i think nate silver and a couple other guys like a 538 have really pointed out that's really important is like the the georgia 6th district is not a seat that the democrats need to take over the house it is pretty far back past the point of which they would take back the house that you know there's far more democratic districts that are held by republicans that are needed to take over the house and the georgia six really was a stretch it was a stretch district to compete and the fact that we did this well in this district i think is 
a pretty big point of uh, accomplishment, and the fact that it was so close really is something to be proud of for Democrats, because if we do this well in other districts, then we're going to basically take back the house and so i think the big thing i would be concerned about if i was you know reg over here who's i'm sure itching to talk uh i can see him he is uh i would be worried that a lot of republicans will take this as a sign that they have nothing to worry about and that they become complacent and that they see this as a sign that they can pass whatever health care bill they want and they can hurt as many people as they want and they can take away health care from as many people as they want without electoral consequence and so i think if anything this is a sign that the you know the fight continues and that we need to continue the resistance and that if we uh keep up the pressure it will eventually pay off reed let's get your insight on this i had been critical of karen's campaign also um but i kind of wanted to sort of withdraw some of that criticism now that we're here and that she won by a wider margin than i think a lot of people expected i had sort of complained that her campaign was kind of boring and that all this uh you know bringing up nancy pelosi and barack obama and sort of all this old school messaging from 2010 and 2014 that i didn't think that that stuff would resonate the way that it did um but what was your uh take on her campaign do you think this messaging was effective or or if not why do you think it what do you think karen did to win this race so i definitely think the message was i mean ultimately effective since she i mean ultimately won the race she did run a very generic campaign it was very republican i don't think there was anything obscure about her race but what i think really worked and uh i'm critical of it i know y'all are critical of this is the nancy pelosi characterization nancy pelosi has a 29 percent approval rating nationally. She has a lower approval rating than Donald Trump does. And so I think, uh, in my opinion, and I think a lot of Republicans who are well-versed on this know this, is Nancy Pelosi um, knew how to run the House when she was Speaker. She could she accomplished what she wanted to, the legislative um, agenda that she wanted, she pushed through. And I know as a Republican that if Nancy Pelosi becomes Speaker of the House again, she will run a tight ship. And I think many Republicans are afraid of that. You know, you can run against Donald Trump, which is unpopular, but Nancy Pelosi is even more unpopular. And I know that my fear is that we become complacent because the GOP lost seats in the House in 2016. They lost seats in the Senate in 2016. And these margins aren't the most comfortable. And um, I'm much more reassured with Georgia 6 than South Carolina 5, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, But the Republican Party should not be complacent because we did perform better than... Hillary Clinton did. This was uh, made to be a referendum on Trump, uh, from my perception and many other people's. But I just hope we don't become complacent over this. Um, there was nothing special about her campaign. Um, I thought it was a positive campaign to me as someone who's worked on other campaigns. I thought the campaign was very supportive of its volunteers. Um, I think we could talk about later how Ossoff's campaign handled their finances, uh, which that's a little troubling. Um, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, a win is a win. And I think both sides spent way too much money. Um, but onward to 2018. Austin, what did you think of, of Karen's half of this campaign? And, and I know you dug into a lot of numbers that we've talked about, um, sort of as we're pulling away from this race. What's your take on, on Karen's half of this race? Yeah, I mean, from the, um, you know, messaging and strategy side, uh, you know, we were all kind of critical of the Pelosi thing. And we've maybe you're to the point of, of beating a dead horse on that. But, you know, it didn't really make sense to a lot of the, the Democrats, I think, because 
I don't know, I think myself and others view Nancy Pelosi as kind of old news and kind of out of the way. And I'm not so certain that if the Democrats did take, did take the House that she'd become Speaker. Um, but obviously it works. And like Reed said, I mean, she she doesn't poll well at all. And I've been seeing that a lot. And we saw that kind of leading up to the election as well, that her approvals were, were pretty bad in the district. Even though Ossoff had good approvals, people are connecting him to Pelosi, who has poor approval. So it seems to work. You know, I think that, like we said, kind of generic campaign worked when you're talking about an R plus 20-ish district. Um, you know, so I think the the positive spin that's being put on it is a is appropriate for the Democrats. I mean, in, in reality, this this shouldn't necessarily be competitive. Obviously, Trump didn't do very well in the district, so there's that. Um, so on the messaging side, I think, you know, I think she obviously did a good job. She did what she needed to do. She got the people out to vote. Looking at some of the numbers, some of the post analysis that, that I've been looking at, uh, interesting chart that I put together was looking at how the turnout, the change in turnout was impacted um, in precincts based on Handel's percentage of the vote. Um, so it was actually pretty interesting to see that as Handel's percent of the vote in the in the primary, this is, um, that it increased pretty steadily as she did better. So in her best district, she was able to keep increasing the turnout, whereas it was the complete opposite again for Ossoff, where in his best districts, the turnout did not increase as much. So Handel obviously consolidated you know, the turnout that she needed to do. And we, we kind of talked about that before, that this was something that she needed to focus on was getting the turnout um, back out there for the people that voted for someone other than herself and other than John Ossoff as well. So the numbers show that she really did what she needed to do in all the places. I mean, the Fulton turnout was um, much better than the... Uh, than the primary. I mean, every every place was, but as a comparison to the other counties, the Fulton turnout was good. And if you looked at where the best turnout was, it was in those North Fulton precincts where Handel dominated. So, I mean, she knew what she needed to do. She gave the messaging and, you know, we can talk about what the increase in turnout does. Obviously, you know, it's, it's proven here that increase in turnout isn't always going to help Democrats. Of course, it's all about who turns out and, you know, it was disproportionately pushed towards Republican as the turnout went up. So, I mean, it's hard to, to look at Handel's campaign and say she, she didn't do a good job. I mean, we may have criticisms with how it could play in anything other than a special election, but this was the race and she won it. Yeah, I sort of came to the conclusion to to have a little sports analogy, mostly because I'm missing college football deep in the heart of the summer, that Karen Handel's campaign reminded me a lot of Alabama. It, was, it wasn't pretty... We had a lot of criticism when it looked like she wasn't doing well in the same way that everybody can yell about Alabama when they're losing. But sort of at the end of the day, they're, they always seem to win. And, and Karen sort of pulled off the Alabama and, and was able to win you know, without a lot of flash, without a lot of – and with mostly just on you know, substance in terms of her strategy. And, and John Ossoff, he was not this year's Clemson. He was last year's Clemson. He couldn't pull off the magic when he needed it. Um, so let's dig into Ossoff a little bit. There's, you know, there's already a lot of, um, you know, hot takes on this as we move away from the race. One of the ones that I read today uh, talked about how it was from Matt Iglesias at Vox, and we'll link to this in the show notes. He talked about how Ossoff didn't really deliver a really positive economic message. He sort of remained really bland and sort of wanted to position himself as sort of this nice good young man who isn't very objectionable and who, you know, can kind of see things to some extent your way. 
Um, the messaging around the tech jobs for the district, I thought was always pretty weak because there just wasn't a lot of substance there. Um, and then it turned out that, you know, the messaging around stuff like wasteful spending and, and what, uh, Ossoff could do to control the debt. That wasn't something that motivated Republicans to abandon their horse and Karen handle and come vote for him. Um, and even his promises around the affordable care act, they were sensible, but they weren't very motivating in the way that a lot of people on the far left want unabashed embrace of single payer healthcare and, and more aggressive social and economic policies. So Luke, what did you think of of Ossoff's missteps in this race now that we can look back at it. Do you think it was within the messaging or do you think he's just sort of hamstrung by the fact that this is a Republican district and that's kind of what you would expect? I mean, I think everything is amazing in hindsight. You know, it's it's really easy to criticize the strategy now that we know for a fact that it was unsuccessful. Um, that being said, I, I, I don't think I disagree with your general statement that he failed to come up with a bold message for what the future American economy looks like. But, you know, in a lot of ways, I mean, the president has failed to do that. Uh, Hillary Clinton really failed to do that. So to expect John Ossoff, who is a congressional candidate in a special election, running his first race to come up with how he as a lone congressman is going to reshape the American economy is a pretty like bold ask for anybody. I mean, it's very few candidates that are able to do that. And on the same token, uh, Karen Handel failed to do that. Karen Handel did not present a bold vision for the American economy going forward. That being said, would it have helped John Ossoff if he had come up with that? Yeah, totally. It would have been really great and really exciting to see that. I think the only real place that I can uh, focus in on is that I don't think it would have benefited him nor would it have been necessary for him to try to like become Bernie Sanders and had run a far left campaign and talk about how he wanted single payer and talking about how he wanted to you know break up the banks on Wall Street and all that kind of stuff. I mean, let's be honest here. This is one of the richest districts not only in Georgia but in the nation, and you know that that is not a message that those voters would probably be interested in for very selfish reasons. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I mean, I agree. Like, it would have been beneficial for John Ossoff if he could have come up with a more bold message that was not as, you know, milk toast as his message was, but I can't tell you what that message would have been. You know, I don't know what it would have looked like because I think this comes back to, like, the ultimate crisis that the Democratic Party is in right now is, like, how do you have a big tent uh, message, a big tent economic message that includes the people on the far left and includes the blue dogs so that we're a party that could have folks like John Barrow in it and folks like Bernie Sanders at the same time. Like, that's not an easy task. And so I think while uh, Mag Lacey's article, which I read as well, made some really good points and like pointing out what might have been wrong with John Ossoff's campaign, I think the solutions are not really that easy to come up with. And I think it's going to take a lot of soul searching from the party to really come up with it. And it's not something that... Washington or the grassroots alone can come up with. Yeah, I was struck a little bit about uh, what Nate Silver said. I mean, sort of his takeaway is that 
Democrats are just going, if they want to take back over the majority, they need to compete in a wide array of districts and they need to allow their candidates to be different. You can't have Bernie Sanders carbon copies running in every district in the country. And I think that for those in the Democratic Party that have been really focused on what the progressive message is, I think that the question that hasn't been answered and it's not one that was answered by this race because this wasn't the path Ossoff took, but I think this is a question they need to consider is what does progressive messaging look like in these more affluent suburban uh, districts? Because these are very frequently identified as the ones that Democrats need to win to take back the House. Um, But if you are looking from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party and saying that we want to win those districts, but we want to win them with Bernie Kratz. Um, I don't think that they're going to find success in that strategy. Um, well, Reed, you're kinda, to, to be honest, uh, real quick though, I think, I mean, I think the thing that Ossoff failed on is that like the, I criticize this attack a whole lot. So I think um, it's, it's safe for me to say this, like Karen Handel I think still is convinced that John Ossoff is actually Nancy Pelosi in disguise. <laughs> I, I, I still believe that. Um, I mean, we've never seen the two of them together. Have that's we? true. I've I've never seen a picture of them both side by side. Never in the same room. So, never in the same room. So, like, why did John Ossoff not say that he wouldn't vote for Nancy Pelosi? Like, that's something that John Barrow said. He always voted for John Lewis. You know, why did he not attack this head on? Because. I am not shy about saying that I don't think Nancy Pelosi is like the best leaguer for the party. I'm not going to disagree with how incredibly, insanely effective she was during Obama's first term. Like, no questions asked. She was great and you know, at passing getting legislation passed. Not gonna argue that, but she's not a wartime consulary. You know, like she is not the person that you need to get back into the majority, and she's obviously more of a liability right now than she is a benefit. And so I don't see why John Ossoff was not more willing to talk about how he would disagree with Nancy Pelosi. I don't see why he wasn't more uh, specific in how Obamacare could be improved because every Democrat, I don't think there's a single Democrat in this country that would say Obamacare is perfect, nothing needs to be changed, nothing can be improved upon. And I think... In this district especially, it would have benefited him so much more if he would have gone after that sort of thing and say, you know, we should probably raise the subsidies in Obamacare. We should probably change this regulation or, you know, whatever opinion that he had, I feel like he could have been far more aggressive in that because, as you point out, Kyle, a lot of his campaign, to me, felt like he was trying to be as unoffensive as possible. And I don't think that would serve us well in this political moment because we have a lot of politicians who are willing to be offensive and to willing to be, you know, pushed out in ways that they shouldn't be pushing. And I think pushing back against that, the best way to do that is to be critical of your own side in a constructive way rather than a deconstructive way. And that's what we've seen a lot from this current administration. And seeing the alternative of constructive criticism, I think, would have really helped us off in this race. Although I think I would note that I think I did hear him say at one point that he wasn't sure he would vote for Pelosi as leader. But, but that's, it definitely so, that's wasn't so lame. That central. That's lame. Okay, let's be honest. That is as lame 
as I'm losing her name right now, but whoever ran against Mitch McConnell in Kentucky saying uh, I'm not going to tell. Lundergan Grimes. Yeah, Lundergan Grimes, who I really liked. But, like, I lost so much respect for her when she's like, I'm not going to tell you who I voted for. We all know that you voted for Obama. Say you voted for Obama. Same thing for Ossoff. You should have said, I'm going to vote for Pelosi or I'm not. You know, because that's the thing is that I think in, in this district especially that people would have respected him more and he could have gained some votes on the Republican side if he had been more blunt and honest about how he was going to handle things like that. So, Reed, give us a little bit of insight um, in a in a two-part question. Why is it that Pelosi still motivates Republicans in a way that they're willing to get out and you know turn out for Karen Handel at basically record numbers for a special election at, at super high numbers? And then a second part of this, if you know, if the Pelosi message was to ever fail or, or you were to ever get nervous about Democrats being competitive in districts like Georgia six, what kind of messaging from Democrats do you think could appeal in a way that would help them sort of do a runaround on Republicans and districts in Metro Atlanta? So I think the question should be framed a little differently. I think, uh, I mean, as a Republican voter, I mean, I'm kind of sick and tired of the Nancy Pelosi message. I do understand that if she does become the speaker, she would be extremely effective, um, even if you know they don't control the White House. But what I really think is, and I didn't get this uh, opinion or view until I was at Karen Handel's victory uh, party last night, was a lot of Republicans think that President Trump is being treated unfairly. They think he's being treated very unfairly uh, in comparison to past presidents. And I think by making this election much more polarizing, uh, it turned out Trump voters. I saw a lot of people wearing Trump stickers, uh, bikers for Trump jackets, uh, what what have you, at Karen Handel's event. And I think it was a lot of the Trump cohort uh, from the people who I saw on the ground who came out in defense of the president. Um, you know, we'll talk about probably later, but Archie Parnell was able to go under the radar a lot and did much better in comparison, I think. Uh, but that election wasn't polarized. I don't think Trump voters were excited. I still think Trump voters are excited. The Republican Party has a lot of soul searching to do, um, but so does so does the Democrats. Uh, moving on to your second point is, you know, I live right on the border of the 10th district and the 12th district, but I live in the 10th district, and I did not vote for Donald Trump, uh, but I voted for Johnny Isaacson and Jody Heiss without blinking an eye. And I don't think it's the best strategy to appeal to people like me to say, hey, in the special election, you vote for a Democrat you know, over Donald Trump on this referendum of Donald Trump. And I don't think that worked out. Um, again, I live on the border of the 12th. So I saw multiple John, or excuse me, I saw multiple John Barrow campaigns and, you know, he finally went down. But John Barrow was someone who was appealing to me. He was very honest and direct in his ads. And I think unfortunately for John Ossoff, I think he was torn between the two. I really liked some of his local messaging. Um, of course, if I could have voted, I would not have voted for John Ossoff, but I really like some of the local issues you brought in. And I think, you know, he didn't want to do the CNN debate because I think if there was a national platform, John would have been torn between, uh, you know, the more left uh, side of where I think a lot of his finances came from, which don't get me wrong, Karen got a lot of uh, outside financing too. But I think John would have been torn between this moderate centrist view versus the more liberal view if he'd been given this national platform. And I think so early on, he wanted to make this a referendum about Trump. And I think as the election went on, he tried to focus more on the local issues, which I think was great. Uh, but I don't think he was able to uh, consolidate his message. And I don't think the Democrats' message of, you know, you didn't vote for Trump, but you're going to vote for a Democrat for Congress. I don't think that's going to fly so easily. I don't think it's going to be a contract with America that the Democratic Party is going to have in 2018. I think it's going to be individual districts 
uh, specifying, you know, tailoring to those individual district needs. And I think the Democrats can take back the House in 2018. The Senate will be a little more uphill battle. Uh, they can take it back, but I don't think there's going to be a blanket uh, party platform that candidates are going to be running on to take back Congress. Uh, Austin, do you have anything you want to add? Yeah, I mean, I think we've hit on this a little bit, but um, you know, you talk about soul searching in the Republican Party, but I mean, the soul searching in the Democratic Party is just huge right now. Everything is still trying to be put into this Bernie Hillary split, which I just don't think is, I don't think it's healthy um, in general to have that kind of a split. And we talk about big tent and, and what does that really mean is, you know, get things like purity tests or are we going to say that everyone has to follow all these exact same, you know, policy positions across the entire country. And that's not going to work. It's obviously not working and we're trying to hold people to, to certain standards. Um, you know, part of it, it's the unfortunate part of a two party system where we're trying to fit into two different things when there's so many of us that have things that we disagree with from the majority of people in our party. I mean, I think that Democrats have to decide at some point, both in Georgia and around the country, are we going to, you know, are we okay with less representation to make sure that we kind of fit this this purity test type thing, for lack of a better a better phrase, um, you know, for people that are going to vote with us 100% of the time, or are we going to be okay with getting some more people that are Democrats but might not vote with you 100% of the time, you know, either 50 or 75? What's, what's better, the people that are going to vote with you most of the time or people that are never going to vote with you? I mean... I think we need to have a diversity of views. There's a certain, you know, certain things that I think represent potentially the, the Democratic Party. And of course, people are going to disagree on what that even means. But all this talk about messaging and what it is, again, we go back to where did this race start with? And if we're talking about the 6th District and, you know, the first thing was what uh, Ossoff with the make Trump furious, I think. And then, you know, like you said, we, we backed off that. But from the very beginning, it was obvious this was going to be a Trump referendum, which, like Reed said, was going to you know, encourage the the Trump voters to to get back out there. And even though he didn't do as well in the sixth district, it's still going to fire people up. And I think a lot of the messaging that came out against Ossoff that us Democrats didn't necessarily agree with and didn't see is part of the problem with where the Democrats are right now is that we don't realize that some of these things are actually quite effective in keeping us from from winning more elections. You know, we've got to realize that it's not that these people are getting fooled or they don't understand or what it is. It's they don't agree with the messaging that we're giving them. I mean, if we really believe these things that we're saying, we have to do a much better job of explaining what it really is and talking to the people and not just, you know, downplaying a whole, you know, a whole group of the district that they don't understand that they're being fooled. I don't think that's going to be successful down the road. I mean, if the spin from this election is that, oh, all the people that voted for Karen Handel got fooled, I mean, we're just calling them idiots, basically, which isn't going to be successful down the road. If we're going to try to convince them of anything, it's not going to work. Let's talk a little bit about money in this race. Uh, everybody knows by now that both candidates spent a whole hell of a lot of money. Um, John Ossoff, particularly, he was a fundraising dynamo. He got a lot of money from progressive grassroots fundraising that sort of started when online blogs like Daily Costs, uh, you know, pointed him out and directed people who wanted to find a place for their money as an outlet to resist Trump. Um, John Ossoff became that outlet in a way that the candidates, Democratic candidates and some of these other special elections for other members of Trump's cabinet have not. Um, so it actually turned out that, you know, according to a comment I saw from Tim Denson from Athens for Everybody today, 
um, that Ossoff ended up spending about $186 per vote, while Archie Parnell, the Democrat that ran in South Carolina's 5th district that also had a special election the same day, he also ended up losing. But he spent only $18 per vote. His was a race that really didn't get very much attention at all, with the exception of those great House of Cards themes ads that he made. Um, they were awesome. We'll, we'll link, uh, some of the videos in the, in our show notes. Um, but what do y'all think about this idea? I, I'm sort of concerned that to some extent, Ossoff almost raised too much money and it ended up having him have too much capacity to do door knocking and canvassing. Uh, Better Georgia pointed out that he contacted over half of all voters in the district. Uh, He had tons of ads, um, all of that is just sort of absurd when you compare it to a normal congressional race. Um, but do you think that some of that might have been overkill and that maybe people just kind of got tired of Ossoff and, and didn't really want to hear from him anymore? So I, I'm going to start with this. Uh, in my capacity as president of Young Democrats, I reached out to the Ossoff campaign and trying to coordinate activities. And I would swear to you, almost every week, a different Ossoff staffer would contact me not knowing what was going on. I think if there's ever been an example of too many cooks, like this has been an example of that, in that they had so much money that they literally could not think of a reason not to hire somebody else. And there was obviously not a lot of communication going on. And as someone who really, really likes campaigns and really respects campaigns that are run well at least from my interactions with the Ossoff campaign there was a bit lacking there in that the communication was not as solid as it should have been and that there was not clear lines of who was responsible for what when it came to uh coordinating with outside groups so to me if that's what I'm seeing on the front lines I'm assuming there's a problem internally with that and I think that you know too you know too many cooks will spoil the broth man and that that's that is what happened here and i think that's a shame because there's a lot of opportunity with the funds that he had to do some real work that could have paid off dividends and later races and not just his own race um and I, I know austin you had some experiences with this uh as well but i heard from other people it's just like they were contacting people so much and they were starting to stretch because, again, this is something I think we really need to consider when we talk about this race. This was not a Democratic district. This was not a swing district. This was a heavy Republican district, and it required a lot of persuasion for Ossoff to actually win. If he would have won, it would have required persuasion. And the campaign really had some ambitious goals and stretched beyond the Democratic base and Democratic-leaning voters and went to talk to some Republicans. And so... There's a quite decent possibility in my mind that there was some blowback from Ossoff's camp and that they contacted people that had no business ever being contacted by a Democratic campaign, that being contacted by a Democrat actually pissed them off and encouraged them to go vote for Handel. Um, so that's a possibility to think about. And then the last thing I'll say is my personal pet theory, which is there are no independent voters in Georgia, there are no swing voters in Georgia, there are just Republicans in denial. And that, like, every time there are undecided voters in Georgia, it's just Republicans that, like, are lying to themselves about their true affiliation. Yeah, Austin, you ran into the uh, the issue of of the canvassing issue. What what happened with you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've read some stuff that kind of talks about the same thing. But I know I went out and knocked some doors for Ossoff on the Saturday 
before the election. And we had a couple people, um, you know, we actually didn't get too many people to come to the door. I think they, they knew that they should expect some some door knocking at this point. But most of the places we went to already had Ossoff materials um, on their door, on their doorstep, or in the mailbox, you could see things. I mean, it was pretty incredible. And then some of the doors we knocked, you had people answer, who's just like, just stop, just stop talking to me. Like, I'm going to vote for him, or I don't know if I'm going to vote for him, but please stop knocking on my door. As like, I have three Ossoff things here. You gave me the exact same thing yesterday. I told you yesterday to stop coming and talking to me. Why are you here again? And and that and that's just such sloppy campaigning because both you and I know Austin that there are tools that campaigns use that are not complicated to tell you to stop knocking on someone's door if you already have gotten the message across and they've said they're going to support you then you don't need to go out again just because they haven't voted um, and you know there there's. There, and this is this is a frustration that you and I both have that we're talking about is that like there's a lot of research, a lot of really good research that talks about how canvassing is an incredibly effective tool and that you can really boost turnout in a significant way with it. But there's not really been any research on where at what point you reach a diminishing return and even worse, a negative return. That if you keep contacting people that you actually might at a certain point um, get people discouraged to vote for you because you're bugging them so much and that would be uh as a you know uh graduate in political science that is a question i would really really be interested to know at what point you you actually annoy people and i kind of feel like in this race we might have found that point i was gonna say uh during some of my canvassing in brookhaven i heard of some horror stories of what people told me and I was just told that I think some people, I don't say all people, but some people on the Ossoff campaign were just being paid to go out and door knock. And I don't think they were given some of the right, maybe talking points or when to, you know, back down or maybe not to argue with some of the uh, people they knocked doors on. I mean, I had people tell me that they had people arguing with them and they even, I had two or three people say they were called racists for voting for Karen. And all that takes is one Facebook post by someone and then that gets shared. Um, If I could say something good about what the Ossoff campaign did, um, is I heard that they were writing personal letters to people, writing personal, like handwritten letters to people and even like mailing an absentee. Back. Like that is like, that is beautiful. Like, that is making the campaign personal and telling individuals we care about your vote. Um, and that's something that I don't think the, uh, handle campaign did. I think the Ossoff campaign did well, but to go back to, as far as funding goes, I think a terrible mistake the Ossoff campaign made was on how much money they spent on TV advertising. They spent seven, eight, nine million dollars on TV advertising. Barack Obama's 2008 bid, Donald Trump's 2016 bid, showed us that you know that doesn't—that's not the most effective way of getting votes. Uh, I think TV advertising is something now more of the past, and people hate all the TV advertising that goes on. And I think that was just those funds could have been allocated better. That was, in my opinion, the biggest waste of money on both sides was the number of TV advertising. I always laugh when I hear people say that they saw all these TV ads. I mean, I don't remember the last time that I, like, watched a normal TV show. I mean, of course, millennial here, so, you know, <laughs> I just have internet TV or Netflix or whatever. I mean, I'll watch commercials. It's like every time that somebody talks about TV, I'd have to go on YouTube to, to find it and see what it is. Or I see it in an article of somebody talking about, look at this new TV ad, and I only see it online. But on the personal note thing, I heard the the same thing. I know I had a friend of mine who received a personal note from um, somebody on the Ossoff campaign, and they talked about how much they... They liked seeing that it was short, sweet to the point, you know, and something that um, encouraged them to to get out there to get out there and vote. But, you know, I've read a lot of the articles, too, that have said that it seemed like 
the campaign kind of just was like, eh, we got the money, let's just use it on every possible thing for every possible voter. I don't mean to keep slamming the campaign because up until yesterday, I think a lot of people thought they were doing a, a good job with how much money they were spending and being able to go out and knock on you know, over half the voters' doors. And I mean, we don't know. We can say today that maybe it didn't work. You know, we don't don't know for certain. And a lot of this is just anecdotal, you know, right? I mean, we're all just telling these little stories where, oh, I heard this one thing and who knows if it had an effect beyond, you know, if there were staffers calling people racist for voting for Karen, then, you know, that, that some better training there. I mean, that should just be common sense. But I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's just one person and we don't know, but... Another strategy that I have a question for, because I don't know the answer, is I know I heard it from the uh, the person who was leading Indivisible for Georgia 6th District. She said that they uh, contacted <coughs> each individual who pledged to vote in the April election and didn't. And they contacted each of them individually. Um, and I don't know what that vibe was of how do you word that? Hey, you know, you didn't vote, but you need to go vote now. And I don't know if that had a positive or negative impact on those people. And that's uh, messaging that I'm curious about. Because uh, that's a weird scenario, you know, having a jungle primary and a runoff. Um, but that's just something I think I'm we just all need out. to start a research firm. Yeah, that's that's the moral just of the story. I'm <laughs> I mean, right. on on that rig, I know that previous studies have shown that um, I guess uh, negative motivators you could call them have been incredibly effective. Like when you drop a mailer that says like, "Hey, here's your voting record. You missed the past couple elections. You should probably go vote." Uh, you know, and, and you know, kind of implying that they're going to do the same mailer again and mail it to your neighbors based on your voting record. Like that's incredibly effective. So, I mean, on, and, and the thing, and the thing is, that's really interesting. Real quick, is that like it actually matters quite significantly how you work a mailer like that, right. and that like very small differences in how you work it actually increase or decrease the turnout quite significantly. So it really just depends on how that outreach was accomplished. That can turn something from being exciting to Big Brother-esque. Right. And you got to find the right line. Exactly. Yeah, I think some of those kinds of mailers that have been criticized in the past, they also send you your neighbor's voting record, how often they vote, as a way to try to pressure you. The last little anecdote I'd note on some of the canvassing and field stuff is something that I read today um, that they're... Molly Ball wrote an article in the Atlantic. We'll link to this where she talked with a campaign volunteer and this campaign volunteer was um, a part of a group of moms that was helping with some of the grassroots efforts for the campaign. And she said that she actually pitched a, a young voter mobilization strategy that the campaign actually ended up adopting where they would go to the homes of Republican parents and ask to speak with their young adult children, like, you know, like 18 to 25 year old children. And I remember all this stuff uh, from a couple years back where surveys have shown that um, more, more so now than in the past, parents don't want their kids marrying people of the other party. And so to go to the home of a Republican parent as a Democratic canvasser and try to uh, get their children and convince them to vote for a Democrat while just sort of accepting that uh, the, the parents are Republicans. I don't know. I don't know how widespread that strategy was, but I just thought that was a really odd anecdote uh, out of the campaign. Now I know when we, sorry, just last point. I know, like I said, I went and knocked on doors on Saturday and I, they made sure to tell us in the, you know, the training before we went out, they were like, some of these people, their parents might be Republicans, but make sure you're asking for the person that's on there because we know that they're, they've expressed support for John in some way. So 
I don't know. I mean, they didn't specifically say this was we're targeting these people, of course, but you know, maybe something to back that up too. It's kind of interesting strategy to try to do it, but I could see where it could backfire. But maybe untapped. I don't know. All I hope is that Karen Handel gets everyone in the sixth district some really, really great office chairs. <laughs> <laughs> That's all I want. I could use a new office chair. I could too. It, it, the leather is peeling. It's not good. So you know, if she could spend some money on some office chairs for the sixth district, I think we got we all be out ahead. Maybe an off chair. All right. So let's wrap our discussion of the special election with sort of some context, putting the Georgia six race in context with South Carolina, Kansas, and Montana, and what these results sort of predict for what Democrats might be able to do in the 2018 midterms. Um, So it's pretty well established that the president's party tends to lose seats in the midterms. But the fact that Democrats have gone over four in trying to flip seats held by Republicans when these Republicans were pulled out of Congress and put in President Trump's cabinet, um, this is something that's been kind of demoralizing to Democrats. But it's actually a pattern it's not it's not a brand new pattern. Um, I looked back at the special elections in 2009 with members of President Obama's cabinet or, or other people that went into the Obama administration. So Republicans actually you know, failed to flip some seats for some Obama appointees. Democrats held four seats in 2009 for administration members that left the Congress. And then there was actually one Republican member of the House that joined the Obama administration. I think he ended up being Secretary of the Army. And then Democrats actually sat a Democrat in that seat and flipped it in 2009. The The other one that stood out that I think people will remember that was really shocking, which was one that felt like a parallel to this race, was that Scott Brown was elected as a senator from Massachusetts. Um, this was sort of, this was almost a year into the Obama administration, and it was an election that was seen as a, a referendum on the health care bill as it was being debated. But that Scott Brown one was really an anomaly. Um, but ultimately, the fact that Democrats held those special elections in 2009 did not stop them from being wiped out in the 2010 midterms. They lost six Senate seats and 62 House seats. Um, and then some numbers that Nate Silver at 538 wrote about today, him and Matt Iglesias and some others that I've seen have sort of positioned the argument that Democrats should not be too discouraged by the fact that they're losing and they should pay more attention to the fact that they're beating previous congressional candidates, how they did in this race or in previous races. And that the fact that some of these races have taken place in really red districts, but Democrats have closed gaps should be promising to Democrats uh, when they actually get to compete in all of the House races, including ones that are much closer. Um, and you know, Nate Silver thinks that there's a potential that there might be 60 to 80 Republican seats that could get that could become vulnerable if there really is a real anti-Trump wave. Um, Reed, I'll start with you on this one. Is any of that concerning to you or are you feeling okay that Republicans have gone four and O and we're just not tired of winning yet? So I'm starting to get sick and tired of winning and I hope I have Acha to uh, help me out with that. Um, (laughs) We're four and O a win is a win. No, no, no doubt about it. But you know, when we lose seats in 2016 in both the house and the Senate, that's not too promising for 2018 Um, to wrap up these special elections. My overall opinion is this Georgia 6th election was ridiculous. 
and I pointed at the Congressional Leadership Fund, in my opinion. When they made that Star Wars ad and went completely absurd on John Ossoff, that's when he got that popularity. As a millennial, you can't attack Star Wars. You can't do that. And so this race got blown out of proportion. And in my opinion, if people want to spend $30 million on a losing congressional election, they can keep doing that. Um, but it's not promising for Republicans. They can't get a big head over this. Um, I think, you know, of course, Obamacare was a rallying call in 2010. You know, I don't know what the rallying call will be in 2018 for the Democrats. But I think just running an anti-Trump agenda is not going to work as it worked for the Republicans running an anti-Obama agenda. Uh, whether that's right or wrong, it's just those are the results we've seen so far. Um, the Republicans should be worried, you know, if the effects of they're trying to delay the effects of Acha for the next few years um, to try to escape 2018. But we'll see. I think there's a lot of vulnerable uh, Republicans. There are a few vulnerable Democrats in, uh, you know, such as North Dakota, um, Missouri, for example. And we'll just have to wait and see. Um, so I'm optimistic as far as state elections go. But national, you know, I'm going to hold my breath. Um, I think uh, the Democrats have a lot of soul searching to do, but so do the Republicans. And um, I think it's going to be individual races. I don't think it's going to be some blanket contract across the country. Luke, what do you think about upcoming midterms? I mean, it's exactly how I started out this conversation, which is Ossoff's race would have been really great to win. It would have been awesome to win it. But it's not necessary for us to win it in 2018 to take back the House. It would be a stretch district. And if we won the John Ossoff's district, I mean, oh, my God god like we you know the democrats would have just been slaughtering the republicans and we would have won so many house seats it would have been a blowout on the proportion of not 2006 but more like the 1930s when the democrats you know beat back the republicans and hoover like it would be uh, just a massacre so i mean at the end of the day yeah I, w- I really wish we would have won this seat but i don't think it's really all that illustrative because the four seats that we have lost have been heavily Democratic seats, and we have done so much better than we had any business doing. And one of the things I've noticed we haven't even said tonight, but it's very, very true, which is the South Carolina district, which was, by the way, Frank Underwood's district, uh, Archie Parnell did better than John Ossoff did. Like, he, that margin was closer than Ossoff's was, which is insane considering how much money was spent on both sides, and, you know, that... Definitely begs a lot of question about strategy going forward, but I mean, like the these are not losses in the sense that like we did horribly, like we did really really well considering the last results for those districts. Be and I don't think um, you should ignore that because at the end of the day, don't get me wrong, there's lots of things Democrats can improve on, and there's lots of ways I think we could run this race better and all those other races better. Um, but I don't think any of the specific criticisms really hold water to me in the way that, um, people pretend they do. Because, like, with the Montana race and the South Carolina race, everyone's like, oh, you should have spent more money. If only you'd spent more money, you would have won. Well, we spent all the money in the world for John Ossoff, and we didn't win that one. So, it's like, it's not a single thing there's no silver silver bullet with it it's not going to be easy to win seats like these four seats that we just competing in but the thing is if Ossoff had been running in maybe like Rob Woodall's district he he probably would have won like it's it's a situation that like 
This is just a district that a, Repo a Democrat has no business winning, and that's a whole conversation on gerrymandering and a lot of other factors, but Democrats have a lot to be frustrated with, but also a lot to be hopeful with, and Republicans just have things to be scared with because there's no interpretation of this result that should make you want to do Snoopy dances because all looking at the numbers is this is a district that was safe for us that we literally never had to think about that we now have to think about and we have to pay attention to and we have to spend a bunch of money on to make sure we don't mess up and lose in the way that we lost Scott, you know, the Scott Brown race in Massachusetts back in 09. Well, I'm looking forward to John Ossoff's return of the Jedi race against Rob Woodall next time. <laughs> I mean, just a quick to, to end on this. I mean, I, I talked about this with Luke in the last episode, but I mean, this was mostly, no matter what, this is mostly going to be a psychological victory or loss in a lot of ways. And we can try to spin this to, you know, have the psychological victory that we've, we've decreased the margin. But in the grand scheme, this was still one seat in Congress. It wasn't going to alter the, the course of the, you know, con congressional makeup much. Um, you know, we can talk about the effect that it'll have on healthcare, which we'll get to, but, um, I mean, I think there's there's so many more things in the state of Georgia that are more important for the Democrats to to look at in the next you know 18 or so months. I mean, we're talking about what the makeup of the state house is going to look like. We're going to have the governor's race, you know, the other statewide races as well. They're going to have much bigger impact on the state and the future of the district lines. Most particularly when you're looking at that the redistricting is going to be coming up soon. You know, there's so many more things that we could have been spending 30 million dollars on, and I hope that. You know, I don't know if $30 million is going to come back in, but we've got to figure out a way to to bring the focus back to what we can do and compete in with the state house races and the, you know, constitutional offices. Uh, so, I mean, that that's my thing. I mean, this, this race was always just one seat. It was a psychological thing. And we've got to remember that there's a lot of other things that are really more important for the state right now. And what as Democrats we can do looking at 2018, use this as the margins are shrinking let's get that $25 million back in the state and really make a big difference in 2018 instead of complaining about a loss or whatever else this could potentially be. So one of the other takes that come out of this race was that a Karen Handel victory might embolden Senate Republicans as they consider uh, continuing on the House's quest to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, so let's sort of move into the second topic and discuss where that is at. Um, so by the time you're listening to this on Thursday, Senate Republicans are expected to release the text of their proposal to repeal and replace Obamacare. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is planning for a vote next week um, to have a vote and try to get this done before the July 4th recess. Uh, but it, some of the indications right now seem to be that McConnell is basically ready to get this thing off of his plate. He's ready to bring it to the floor regardless of if it has 50 votes, and he's going to make his members decide whether or not they are for or against Obamacare. Um, there's been a lot of criticism of the process um, of how this bill has been come up with. There's no text as of Wednesday night, and it's expected that Republicans want to vote within a week. Um, and that whatever is being developed right now has been developed behind closed doors. There's no hearings planned on the bill, a bill that would remake one-sixth of the American economy. Um, and this is a process that has frustrated some Republicans also, but they seem resigned to the process, and they are not willing to go against McConnell and try to blow this thing up over process. 
Um, just to, to check in on sort of where the whip count is on this one right now, this is something that's going to be a nail biter for Republicans. Uh, right now, for, according to the reporting, they're still short of the 50 votes that they need. They, they want to have 50 votes plus Pence to break the tie in the Senate. Um, and there's complaints from moderates and conservatives about this bill. So the conservatives have sort of laid out a case that um, they want the Senate bill to go further than the House in some respects. They want deeper cuts to the Medicaid program than the House uh, passed. They also want to be sure that the Medicaid expansion, which was an Obamacare provision, that it ends by 2020 instead of a later phase out. Um, they want to allow states to opt out of some of the insurance regulations that provide protections for pre-existing conditions and certain benefits packages for people who sign up for uh, individual market plans. They want to repeal all or most of the taxes in the ACA as soon as possible, and they want to defund Planned Parenthood for a year and make sure that tax credits in the plan cannot fund any sort of abortion services. Um, they're sort of lined up against moderates right now. The moderates are skeptical of a really fast end to the Medicaid expansion. Uh, senators like Capito from West Virginia, who's mired in the uh, the worst of the opioid crisis, and Rob Portman from Ohio, sort of the same story. They want to see a more slow wind down of the Medicaid expansion. Um, and then Republican governors, including John Kasich from Ohio, um, they joined Democrats in a letter criticizing Medicaid cuts, and Kasich and John Hickenlooper, a Democratic governor from Colorado, said that a big health care bill really needs to have bipartisan support. Um, and so they want to see the Senate scrap this process where they're only going to pass something with Republicans and kind of start over with um, you know, with a bipartisan approach to sort of fix the, the law as it is now. Reed, let's start with you. We've I've, we talk about healthcare a lot on this show. I've uh, called this bill a dumpster fire of a bill. I I think it's terrible policy. I think it's also not policy that fulfills the ideological goals of Republicans. But then again, I'm not a Republican, and um, so what do you think about this process and and the bill that they're working towards? Is this something that Republicans are excited about? So starting off with the process, um, I don't know anyone who's happy about it. Um, I mean, it's the same. It's not the same thing uh, as what Democrats did with the Affordable Care Act. But it's there were, worse. It's, it's, it's worse. Yeah, I, I say that. But there were parts of how the Democrats, you know, handled the Affordable Care Act to where Republicans disagree with that. And for Republicans to now do even worse um, is simply hypocritical. Uh, as Luke can testify, my favorite American politician of all time is um, Nelson Rockefeller, who is uh, much more progressive on health care than many uh, congressional and Senate Republicans are today, um, and I definitely fit into his category. But I think it's mostly about rhetoric, and I think you know, as you said, I think Mitch McConnell just wants to get this over with. And I, no matter what happens, representatives are going to have to go back to their districts, and they're going to have to explain why they voted for or against, and whether Obamacare is still the law of the land or it isn't. Um, I can't name a single major, you know, entitlement program that's been taken away from Americans. And I think you're right. I don't think that this act. Um, Acha fulfills what the Republicans want. Uh, it reminds me of like, do we want a hard Brexit or a soft Brexit? And it's like, you know, are we going to tick off moderates or conservatives or both? And I think right now this is kind of doing both. And I think it's, um, I think it's ultimately a ridiculous bill, uh, but I think they ultimately just want the rhetoric behind it. And I don't know if we'll see the effects in 2018. 
But, you know, we might see the effects in 2020. You see these districts, you know, in Kentucky and Tennessee and West Virginia that went so overwhelmingly for Trump who benefit so much from the Affordable Care Act. It's basic economics to know that you can't mandate people, require services for people, but then say, oh, you don't have to buy health care. Right. That's not sound economics. And I just I don't know where this is going to go. Um, I personally don't think it, I personally hope it's not passed. Um, but I think Mitch McConnell just wants to get it off his chest. And we saw uh, Acha die and come back again. And um, if it fails in the Senate, um, I'm not sure if it will stay down or if it will come back. Um, I don't think President Trump really cares. I just think President Trump was able to blame it on someone. Um, I think that's what Donald Trump likes to do. Um but if it, if it passes, he'll claim victory for it. If it does pass, I think that gives the Democrats a really good talking point for 2018. Although uh, I hope it's not a talking point because uh, millions of people will be negatively affected by it, especially in Georgia. And so uh, I hope it's not passed. Guys, we swear Reed's a Republican. I promise I'm a Republican. <laughs> I we swear i'm sorry we have not found the trumpkin yet one day well i'm not well even the trumpkins i don't think are going to be big into this bill but i think this is part of the issue that this is not something as far as i can tell that republicans are excited about because it doesn't meet their goals and it seems much more a political exercise to just be able to say to be able to in some sense say that they repealed and replaced ACA regardless of what the impacts are. But, um, and, and, and Luke, to paraphrase, uh, Huey Lewis in the news, it's simply hypocritical. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is. So Luke, what do you think the role for Democrats should be in this? There's not a lot that they can do, but there's been a lot of pressure from the left for them to do something. Well, um, I mean, what do you think Democrats should be doing here? It's really hard because uh, I was seeing that Roll Call reported that um, Mitch McConnell and the Republicans are considering just like completely avoiding the House Parliament, uh, I'm sorry, the Senate Parliamentarians ruling on if uh, the bill meets reconciliation requirements or not so it's just like in this environment like i don't know what you do because uh we we don't like mitch mcconnell like very few people do but it's impossible not to give him credit that he is while nog is like savvy and good at making it look on the outside as lyndon johnson like he is really good at ramming stuff through the Senate and making it just, like, seem impossible that things could happen and make them happen or the other way around of, like, stopping things that he doesn't want to have happen. It's really hard for me to advise how the Senate Democrats should handle this because I feel like Mitch McConnell's going to find some way around them. And... That if they are too harsh in they're trying to stop everything and gum stuff up, that they're going to find uh, a lot of Republicans that otherwise might be open to, you know, getting upset with Mitch McConnell for pushing things the way, you know, pushing things through so aggressively that if they start opposing it, that they might lose them. So I think they're in a really delicate spot that they've got to find a way to thread the needle that they're not being so outwardly aggressive that they galvanize all the Republicans that like, we got to pass a bill because we got to keep every, you know, we got to, you know, beat the Democrats who are trying to push us back on this bill. 
but also not just like roll over and let it through because I, you know, I was, I was listening to uh, Pod Save America and like they were talking about how it, you know, it might be a strategy for Democrats to just like introduce like a thousand amendments and like debate all these insane amendments and try to slow things up that way and prevent them from voting on the bill before the midterms like that. I mean, that would be a pretty unprecedented strategy, but on the same token, Mitch McConnell is doing a bunch of things that are incredibly unprecedented, but like, you know, ha- as we've mentioned, having a bill that affects one-sixth of the economy uh, get brought up without a hearing. And, I, you know, it's just, it's, we, we've reached such a level of just pure horror show that it's really hard to advise what the proper role is because, you know, my natural instinct is like, you know, you know, it's the Senate. There's a hundred people in there, you know, uh, 48 of them are Democrats or caucus with the Democrats. 52 are Republicans. Try to sit down with them and come up with a strategy that, you know, doesn't seem insane. But when you have an operator like Mitch McConnell, who is going to push through what he wants to push through, regardless of what you do it's really hard to operate in that environment and as as we've mentioned it's not even clear he wants this bill to pass it seems like he just wants this done as soon as possible and if it fails he's like great i don't have to deal with it anymore or if it passes he's like great we'll move on the conference committee and then he'll push that as fast as he possibly can because as i always mention and the way that you kyle love to bring up the fact that uh, health, you know, health care is important. I bring up the fact that all Republicans care about is tax reform, and by for reform they mean cuts. And so they're just trying as fast as humanly possible to get to those tax cuts. You know, this is what's in the way of the tax cuts right now. Something I see that's frustrating is how many Republicans are being kept out of the loop on this, even in their own party. You know, one of the statesmen of the Republican Party, Orrin Hatch, uh, I think is supposed to be taking one of the leads on this bill, and he doesn't even know what's going on. And I think it's just, I think Mitch McConnell is uh, sliding the Republicans as well. And um, it just needs to end. Yeah, I mean, Hatch is one of the chairs of one of the main committees that's dealt with health issues for a very long time. And he's participated in some of the bipartisan health care debates, particularly around like children's health insurance program. And this is definitely, that to me is like the giveaway that this is so much more about politics than about policy. Um, Austin, I know you're kind of, outside of the healthcare issue a little bit, but, but what do you think about how this process is developing and, and where do you think it might go? Yeah. I mean, I think just from not just in the healthcare context, but you know, it's obviously what we're talking about now because it's what's the major piece of legislation in front of the Senate. Um, you know, I think we are at a scary place with, with both sides and what's going to happen going forward. And if anything can ever get done, you know, the Democrats, you know, are going to try to do whatever they can to try to stop this, this healthcare bill. But what does that mean going forward? You know, if the Democrats do take back, you know, one or both chambers of Congress, is anything actually going to get done, regardless of who's in the White House at this point? I mean, is anything ever going to get done in Congress? You know, any major changes? Are we just going to be stuck with the same, the same things? You know, I think I, I wrote something soon after Trump got elected, you know, saying that Democrats shouldn't obstruct just to obstruct, just to you know, be a pain for Trump. You know, I, if there's things that we could get done, then we should try to get those things done. Um, you know, stand up for the things that, that we're going to fight for. But, you know, I, I still believe that and still think that's the, the appropriate way because if, if that's not what we do, then we risk 
stopping everything and we're never going to get anything done. You know, if the Democrats just stop everything just because, then when we become, you know, the majority party at some point, whenever that is, then the same thing is going to be done back to us. At some point, it's got to stop. And I mean, how does it stop? That's the, the, I mean, that's the problem. I mean, this is obviously a huge issue and it's something I think the Democrats do need to fight for. Um, there's only so much that they're going to be able to do because in the end, they might not have the votes to, to stop anything. But, you know, it's something they should fight for. But if the other side's going to do all the same stuff and uh, there's never going to be an opportunity to to really debate on it like we would expect, then I don't know. I mean, I don't think there's a solution necessarily until one side finally says that this isn't what's going to happen or a group of people from both sides say that this is enough, that we can't we can't operate with this level of partisanship and this level of disagreement and, you know, infighting. So, I don't know. I just think it's a scary place to where we could get to a point where nothing's ever going to happen and it doesn't matter who's in charge. We just sit in the same place as we are. The 2016 policies, that's it. We're done. Um, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to, one of the things that I think is happening because this is such a partisan fight is that the policy is getting somewhat lost. I mean, I think Democrats and and advocates in this space are aware of what some of the negative impacts would be, but I think it's worth pointing out some of the really negative impacts that Georgia could see. Um, So we don't know what the details are in the Senate bill yet. You might, if you're paying close attention by the time this comes out. But what we thought when the bill got out of the House and went to the Senate was that the Senate sort of made it sound like they were going to write their own brand new bill. They weren't really working off of the House's version of the bill. But then the reporting that's come out about the bill and the fact that they're pushing it through so quickly basically makes it impossible for them to stray too far from the House's framework and that the changes that they have proposed are either worse or they're only going to make it minor, better in a more minor way that uh, isn't going to improve some of the coverage numbers you know, in the first round of this, it was a bill that was going to cause 23 million people to lose their health insurance and cut $800 billion from the Medicaid program. But to zero in on Georgia a little bit, um, you know, the original version of this was going to cut Medicaid in Georgia by $4 billion over 10 years, and the Senate is considering an even deeper cut. And that deeper cut takes place in the half of Medicaid that is important to Georgia because it's the part, it is just the the current Medicaid program, not the expansion program. And I think this creates a really bad potential outcome for rural areas in Georgia that I think is worth talking about. Um, so Claire Suggs at Georgia Budget and Policy Institute had a blog up earlier this week where she talked about how kids on Medicaid are more vulnerable than other kids. They're more likely to have illnesses, vision issues, and be exposed to lead, and that Medicaid provides services in schools like speech therapy, occupational therapy, and medical equipment that are really important to keeping these kids on track, keeping them you know, engaged in the classroom and helping them learn and succeed. Um, But the way the bill is structured right now, Georgia's going to see big Medicaid cuts that really, I think, could be catastrophic for providing social services in rural areas in Georgia. And I think it's going to hurt Medicaid. The Medicaid cuts hurt rural Georgia in three ways. Um, The first is is those services within schools. You lose funding for these services that are important for high-need students. Uh, The second is that the cuts in Medicaid at the federal level create a big cost shift to states and that Georgia is going to have to make tough choices about what to cut. They're obviously going to have to cut from the Medicaid program, but they might have to look at other big budget items like schools and continue 
austerity cuts that the state has made in recent years. They are already underfunding schools by $160 million, and they may end up going in the wrong direction. And then the third piece of this that I think is important is that if Medicaid cuts lead rural hospitals to close, I think there's a connection for how you bring people into rural areas. And as it relates to schools, how do you bring quality teachers into rural schools to help kids? Because a lot of the other sort of school choice ideas that Republicans have debated at the state level, those are good in urban and suburban areas, things like charter schools and sort of alternative school models. But those things aren't seeping down to the rural areas of the state. And so one of the main ways in which the state can improve schools in those areas to, so is to attract high-quality teachers. But how do you get a high-quality teacher to move to a county like Clay County in southwest Georgia if you don't have the provision of other services like health care? Um, I was reading a little bit about Clay County today, and they're one of sort of the, the worst examples of a rural economy in decline. They've got one physician and no hospital in the county. They don't have their own high school anymore. Their cell service and infrastructure for water and sewer services is limited, and they have no major highways. And in rural counties like these, a lot of, you know, over half of kids in the these counties rely on Medicaid and and they, you know, suffer through this sort of not good enough provision of services. And so they're, you know, either going to end up in a dead end because they don't have the opportunities that urban suburban kids have, or if they can get out, they're going to leave and never come back and just let those communities um, continue to go into decline. So this is something that is a big question for the Georgia legislature right now. Um, So uh, Reed, I'll start with you. When you think about the issues confronting rural Georgia, particularly as it relates to healthcare and, and some of these other things that we've laid out. Um, I mean, what should Republicans be doing to address these issues aside from, at least in my opinion, aside from not passing this terrible health care bill? Right. So as far as uh, I think Georgia Republicans are concerned, um, or those in the assembly, I think a big thing uh, will come through education reform. I know that's something that uh, Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle is talking about. I know that's something that Representative uh, Stacey Evans likes to talk about, and I think that will be a big topic in the 2018 gubernatorial race. But I think education is where it all comes down to. Uh, look at graduation rates in rural areas. And I think when you when you educate your your, your populace, you know, um, hopefully they go and get educated and they return back to those districts and they develop them. Um, and maybe that's just um, a Republican way of looking at things. Um, but, you know, invest and uh, see the returns. And I think, um, you know, there is an education gap in rural and and uh, urban counties, and um, th- I think the solution lies there. And I think uh, through there, when you when you do that, I think ec- economic development comes. I'm seeing that in Columbia County, where I'm from. Um, I'm seeing the benefits of people moving there uh, because of our education uh, versus Richmond County. Um, and you're seeing and you're seeing businesses boom. And uh, Columbia County, 10, 15, 20 years ago, was much more rural uh, than it is today. And I think because they have such a great education system there, uh, I think you see the returns. And I think that will happen in places like Clay County and other things. And that's, again, much easier said than done. Um, But Republicans, if we're going to prioritize education, you know, um, it comes with paying our teachers more. Um, You know, I think many of our state employees, especially, you know, in police departments and fire departments, you know, they're not paid enough. 
I think we're one of the lowest states, and maybe y'all have the statistics on those, but we do not pay um, those employees well enough than we should. Um, and I was talking to uh, the speaker a few months ago, and you know, he said that he said that you know we do not pay our police officers enough and our teachers enough, and that's something that needs to change. And whether Republicans in our state want to buckle down and do that, um, you know, and put the pen to the paper, um, that's something else. Um, and that's hopefully something I can fight for. And, you know, all the Georgia electorate should put pressure on both parties um, in office um, to get something done. Yeah, I heard Speaker Ralston talk about how, um, you know, the, the issues in rural Georgia are really tough and you, you really can't rely on bumper sticker solutions. You need real options. But Luke, it, it really should be the job of the Democrats to also propose options. I mean, I know that they've pushed for Medicaid expansion um, in the past, but what what vision do you think that they need to offer? I mean, particularly as it relates to this interaction between healthcare and education and other services in these rural areas that, that I think are important in keeping these communities afloat. Um, you know, what, what do they need to be doing to really shift the conversation and point out how terrible some of these changes could be for Georgia? I, well, I mean, I think the first thing is they have to do that. They have to be willing to say, my opponent, Casey Cagle or Brian Kemp or whoever it is, supports a policy that will make your life worse. And this is that policy, and this is what that policy will do. The other half of it is, and this is the thing that's really hard to... I think for Democrats to execute because fundamentally we know is like to win Georgia, there's a level of persuasion that's going to have to be done. We're going to have to turn some Republican voters into Democrats, and that's not an easy thing to do. It's been done in other states. There's states like Missouri that has have done it really well. Montana has done it decently. It, it can be done. North Carolina is another example. Virginia is a state that used to be very Republican but now is not. And I think those are states we're going to have to look at as models. And I think at the end of the day, what it is, is we're going to, you know, it, it, it's it's a two-part equation. There's the part of the equation that is pointing out, and this is usually aided by a poor Republican candidate, but pointing out when the opponent is supporting policies that will hurt the state. You know, we saw this with uh, the you know gubernatorial race in North Carolina last cycle, where you have a Republican governor supporting anti-LBGT bills that had a very fundamental cost to how much money the state was bringing in. And at a certain point, when Republicans keep playing games with one-sixth of the economy and saying, we are the Republicans and we will win the healthcare fight because we will repeal what Obama did regardless of what the policy implications of that, and they think that people will reward them because we said we will get rid of Obamacare, Obamacare is gone, so we win, rather than we actually made people's lives better. I think that's where Democrats have a really big opportunity to be like, this is how we're going to make lives better in comparison to what the Republicans are doing. But the hard part about that is, is, and I think this is a, a place where Ossoff failed and a lot of other Democrats failed, is that alternative that we provide cannot just be, hi, I'm a Democrat, I'm not a Republican, looking at the stupid things the Republicans are doing, I'm not doing that. They have to actually offer a, this is the view for the future that I have. And, you know, it actually reminds me of the conversation, the first conversation that we had on this podcast with someone between just me and you, Kyle, was, you know, Jason Carter talking about portable benefits. And, like, that's something that I think 
is part of a larger conversation that is going to be need to have and that like i think a successful candidate in georgia running statewide is going to have to run a campaign on something other than education it's going to have they're going to have to run a campaign on how do we actually finally get the georgia economy into the 21st century because i think there's a lot of regressive thinking when it comes to how the economy should work and education should work in that people are still trying to do what worked in the 80s and the 90s and it's just apparent to everyone that pays attention that that's not the case anymore and that the things that we did that were very successful in Georgia and that we, you know, to be frank, we're pioneers in is not going to be enough for the future and that we're going to have to do things that have never been done before to really be bold and be leaders and innovate in education, in the economy, and in creating and bringing jobs to Georgia. And until a Democrat runs on that, it's going to be hard for them to win. And I think that is where I also see Democrats lacking in the conversation uh, about healthcare and you know in the Capitol is like, we don't have an alternative. We need to provide an alternative that people can get behind and not just say, look at how stupid our opponents are. Um, because at the end of the day, that just gets into the identity politics that I think people uh, have really grown sick of and usually disadvantage Democrats. The other thing worth noting um, is that these problems really are kind of unique to rural Georgia. I mean, if you look at Metro Atlanta, if you look at the economy in Georgia's 6th District, for instance, um, the unemployment rate is low. There are lots of opportunities for jobs. When Governor Deal touts Georgia as the number one place to do business, uh, he's really talking about the economy in Metro Atlanta, which I think for all intents and purposes, especially in the wake of the Great Recession, is actually doing pretty well. Um, but Austin, this reminds me of something that you say often is that we just need to put Democrats in more races so that some of these problems can be highlighted and Democrats can have a space to actually make this case. Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. And, you know, it kind of goes back to what I said a little bit earlier about the future of the of the party that, you know, we're going to have a diversity of views and the views of the Democrats in rural Georgia are going to be a little different than the views of the Democrats in, you know, metro Atlanta. Um, you know, Georgia is unique in the fact that I think pretty much half of the population is in metro Atlanta. If you try to compare it to something like North Carolina, I think the it would take the top six, the six largest cities in North Carolina to match the population of Atlanta. Um, so that just changes things when you're looking at a statewide scale. But yeah, I, mean, I think if, if the Democrats actually got people running in some of these rural places and talk on, I think, mostly economic issues there, education as a part of that as well, due to its obvious impact on economics. Um, that's the kind of stuff that the people in rural Georgia are going to care about. Like we talked about, you know, how do we attract quality teachers and people to rural Georgia when you're worried about health care and a lot of these other, you know, social service issues? Um, you know, part of it, no one's been talking about it. Um, Democrats definitely haven't. The focus has been so heavily on on Metro Atlanta. And, you know, there's not enough in Metro Atlanta for Democrats to do anything statewide. And if they're not going to allow the Democrats basically from rural Georgia that may not agree 100% to be part of the party, then we're never going to never gonna get anywhere. 
And the, the concerns of rural Georgia need to be heard and need to be talked about. And I think the Democrats have an answer for a lot of that. But we've done a pretty bad job of explaining and doing anything and providing an option for the people in rural Georgia. I mean, providing the option is just the first step, right? Getting people on the ballot and giving somebody to talk about and even debate some of the issues in these places. I mean, you're talking places that haven't seen a Democrat in, in many years. And, you know, how does anything change if people aren't given the option? I think that's just the just a base level thing to give give people all over the state an option, not just the people that live in Metro Atlanta. And I think that's a a good point to wrap on. I think I'll just close by saying that if if you're somebody who is inclined to call your senator, um, I would actually make this plea particularly to Republicans to have them call Senator Isaacs and Senator Purdue and say, you know, make sure that whatever you're doing with the health care bill, it's not going to screw people over in rural Georgia. Um, I mean, all the reporting, everything suggested that I've seen so far, uh, the Senate bill is not going to meet that standard. Um, but we'll leave it there. Uh, so thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, Reed, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'm going to deem you at the end of this episode a friend of the pod. Aw, oh, thank you, Kyle. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> you don't have that power, Kyle. I just took it. Um, this is this is no longer a democracy. This is Trump's America. Um, <laughs> uh, Luke, as always, it's been fun. A fun out of time, as always. And Austin, thanks for all your great work to, uh, breaking down all the numbers related to Georgia 6. Of course. Always enjoy it. Alrighty, guys. Well, we will leave it there. Um, look for more programming from us. Uh, obviously, we're going to get away from the Georgia Six race. Finally, um, thank you. To some different. God. Yeah, I think we're all happy about that. The Ossoff um, has been tossed off. We're going to get into some other stuff. <laughs> yes, we're tossing him off the pod. That's a good um, way to handle actually, it. Actually, he's welcome to come on if he wants to talk about his race. Um, but we'll leave it there. Look for some different stuff from us throughout the summer. And as always, if you have some ideas for things that you want to hear about, people you want to hear from, particularly if they are candidates, reach out to us at PeachPodGA on Twitter, uh, PeachPod.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, find us, let us know what you think, and we will talk to you again soon. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care, y'all.